podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast, brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsors, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield are, of course, a VPN provider. Do check out their services at libertyshield.com and use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off your hardware or software package. How are we all? It is Monday morning, the 9th of November. Winter is here. Christmas is approaching, but... It's international break, and nobody likes an international break, especially at this time in the middle of a pandemic. You really have to question the morals behind an international break. We've just had one, and now we're having another one. All these players are heading off to play three games for their international teams. England, for example, could have only had two games because New Zealand pulled out of one, and rather than be responsible and take that extra couple of days off, they instead decided to load up a friendly against the Republic of Ireland, which I will not be watching because Ireland suck at the moment, and I really just don't like international football. Uh, I want to start today by very quickly giving credit to Marcus Rashford once again, and a little smidgen of credit to Boris Johnson. I believe Boris Johnson will go down as one of the more incompetent UK Prime Ministers in history. However, he has finally agreed to work with Marcus Rashford to extend the free school meals policy through the next set of holidays to help combat childhood poverty. This is a massive step forward, a massive, massive step forward. And it is just, it is mind-blowing that a 22-year-old footballer has done more to combat childhood poverty and help hungry children than the elected officials who are paid to look after the people. Just let your head wrap around that one. It is also a very good week from the other side of the pond. uh, The orange buffoon has lost. Joe Biden shall be president. That is something we should all be happy about. The world got a little bit safer. And that is that. I don't want to get too political on this podcast, obviously. But it is my podcast, and you will allow me my views. If you disagree with them, apologies. Feel free to stop listening if you wish. But, you know, politics is politics. Football is football, and we're going to talk about football. Ten games over the weekend, and with no club games next weekend, and a week of podcasts to fill. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cover Friday and Saturday's games today. Sunday's games tomorrow, then hopefully we'll have Lee with us on Wednesday, Twitter questions Thursday, and myself and Guy will come up with something for Friday. Anyhow, uh, we'll start Friday night, Friday afternoon, I suppose. Uh, Brighton hosted Burnley. It was a fairly turgid affair, it must be said. Um, Brighton's best chances in the game fell to Danny Welbeck, who showed why he is 
continually struggled to score goals throughout his career, missing a number of great chances. I thought this is a huge missed opportunity for Brighton. They really went with more of a conventional back five than the back three they've been playing to date. They played very much a 5-3-2, which I thought was a very strange decision from Graham Potter at home to a Burnley team that, number one, have not been very good this season, and number two, don't offer a whole ton in attack. It was... It was a fairly stale game. It must be said, a fairly stale game of football. Burnley came with a very clear plan of getting a point and going home. Did not offer a whole lot in the game. Great for them, though, to get Ben Mee back. That's a massive plus. He did almost cost them quite early on with a slip. But uh, his presence alongside, alongside Tarkovsky will give them that defensive solidity that they've been built on. It allows Tarkovsky, of course, to move back to his more natural right-side centre-back role as well, which is good for him. It gets him back at his best level as well. So defensively, we should see Burnley start to improve over the next couple of games. Uh, they just need to get Jack Cork back, and they're pretty much at a full complement. But then the hard work does start. Obviously, they sit second from bottom on two points they will not be happy with their situation they do have that game in hand but it is against manchester united so you wouldn't expect them to get anything from that game uh brighton i did expect more i really did expect more from them this season they currently sit 16th but there is a four point gap now between 16th and 15th uh which at this point in the season is a little bit of a concern and brighton are unfortunately for them in now the relegation group with Fulham, West Brom, Burnley and Sheffield United. And you would have to say that based on the last couple of seasons, they're one of the three teams that could potentially go down. They're one of the teams that will struggle. And it's of their own doing. The failure to add players in the positions they needed this summer. Um, a couple of poor signings, I think, uh, has harmed them a couple of empty shirts playing on a regular basis it's something they'll need to to really address come january i don't understand how you go from being right in the mix to signing darwin nunez to picking danny welbeck up off the footballing scrap heap there are many other strikers they could have signed when they couldn't get nunez they were also in for nico gonzalez that kind of fizzled out as well um Alexis McAllister was on the bench in this game, didn't come on. Davy Proper on the bench in this game, didn't come on. I really didn't understand the the decisions made by Graham Potter here. It was a poor performance from Potter. Dyche got his tactics pretty much spot on. Rolled his luck a little bit um, in terms of the missed chances for Brighton. But, you know, he came for a draw and he got a draw. Simple as that. Uh, following them, Southampton uh, at home to Newcastle, a 2-0 victory. Che Adams with an excellent goal early on. And then Stuart Armstrong wrapped it up late in the game. This was a really good performance by Southampton. Uh, I thought Tia Walcott played very, very well. Must give him credit for that. Did think he had a good game. Thought Jennifer did all right. Questionable hair. Um, Ariel Romeo was really good in the centre of the park. He controlled the midfield on the day, really bullied Jeff Hendrick around the place, 
gave defensive solidity to the team and allowed them a platform to press. And we know how much this Southampton team likes to press. I was disappointed with Newcastle. Like when you see Southampton line up with Jack Stevens at left back, knowing that pace really is an issue for him. Surely that's the area that you just attack, attack, attack. Surely you just send St. Maximum out to go stand on him and you feed him the ball and you know he's going to cause him all manner of trouble. And they didn't really. I thought it was a very flat performance from Newcastle. I thought the changes they made were... They got very rudimentary in how they went about things. Now, they did create a couple of chances, and we did see um, Alex McCarthy have to pull off one wonderful save. But all in all, I felt like Southampton were quite comfortable in the game. I felt that they looked like a team full of confidence, in form, and they are. They have been in, in really good form of late. Four wins and a draw from their last five. Only Spurs are matching that that level of form over the last five games. So Southampton sit fourth. They did, they did go top of the league briefly after winning that game, which was massive for them. And when you consider where they were 12 months ago, what an incredible turnaround. What an amazing job Ralph Hasenhutl has done. A team that looked dead and buried. A team that was shorn of confidence, without a real plan, without an identity. Years of bad management had led them to that point. Ralph had taken over a very, very poor team. And I don't mean in terms of the players available to him. I mean in terms of confidence levels, tactical plan form they were just a mess Southampton looked like a team destined for life in the championship and it took him a while there's no question it took him a while and maybe it took the players a while and maybe it took that 9-0 walloping from Leicester City for the players to realize we need to listen to this manager this manager has had success This guy knows what he's doing. Yes, he has a very specific game plan. But maybe, just maybe, if we listen to him, we can become better than what we are. And they're a hell of a lot better than what they were. A hell of a lot better. This is a very good team. And this was a win without Danny Ings. And that's massive for them. Che Adams looks like the player they thought they were buying when they signed him from Birmingham for $20 His form is really good this season. He is the perfect complement to Ings when they play together. And when Ings is not there, he can, well, based on one game, admittedly, he looks like he can be that Danny Ings replacement when Ings is out of the team. So that's that's really positive for them. And it's a sign that if you have patience with a player, maybe you'll get your rewards. One of the problems they've had is they haven't always been patient with some of the signings they've made. You look at some of the guys that went out this summer, like, say, a Jordi Classy, who was bought by um, Ronald Koeman, and very, very talented midfielder, very, very highly rated at the time in the Netherlands, never really got the consistent run of games that you would have liked to see. Now, Maybe he never would have been good enough at the Premier League level. It, it is possible. But he was 
he was loaned out very, very quickly. Drop what he sorry, he was dropped very, very quickly. Then he got loaned out, and it's just been a bit of a mess for him. You look at Wesley Hoyt, you know, not the best signing, but they signed a player who was so used to playing in the back three and didn't really give him an extended run to adjust to playing in a back four. You know, he was bought to be the Van Dyke replacement. He was never going to be that player, but he could have been something a lot better than what we saw from them. Um, you look at guys like Sophie and Buffal, super talented, never really given the consistent run of starts that he required. Yeah, they paid a lot of money for him. He left on a free this season. You look at uh, Al Yanassi, who's up at Celtic for the second season in a row on loan, and he's been really good for Celtic. Really, really good for Celtic. He got 16 games at Southampton. Not all of them starts. And not many back-to-back. I think four starts in a row was, or four four appearances in a row was his most across that season. You paid a lot of money for him. £16 million. And he's now been really good for somebody else. He's 26. He's still in his, just in into his prime. He's exactly the type of player that I think would suit this Southampton team. But out on loan he is because he wasn't really given a chance. You know? So for Southampton, I think the, the lesson of Che Adams can be valuable for them moving forward. If you give players an opportunity to prove themselves, they can, potentially they will. That was Friday. Uh, we started Saturday then with Manchester United travelling to Goodison Park to take on Everton. And this was a team that needed a win. Uh, coming off a really disappointing result in midweek in, in Istanbul, United needed a win. And it didn't start well. Uh, Bernard with a lovely finish. After 19 minutes, fooled David De Gea with that lovely little cutback finish. Um, it did not appear that this was going to be a good afternoon for United at that point. Because I think it would be fair to say Everton had been the better team. Everton were happy to have Luca Dina back, but still no Richarlison because of the suspension. Um, but did bring back in James Rodriguez, who did not look fit. Brought back Mason Holgate, who again did not look fit. And uh, United began to to punish the fact that Everton had two guys on the field who clearly were a long way from 100%. Bruno Fernandes gets himself two goals in seven minutes. The first one, a really good header from a Luke Shaw cross. The second one, a bit of fortune to it. It's a free kick. Whipped in. Marcus Rashford jumps for it. Pickford is frozen on his line because he doesn't know if Rashford's going to get a touch and direct it a different way, so he can't commit to trying to save the ball. Uh, maybe might have if he had longer arms, but you know it is what it is. Um, it's it's a you know it's a really good turnaround for United. And at halftime, you know you did sort of think, okay, this is this is a bit better from United. This is where they want to be. And for Everton, you thought. They were still in the game. Surely this second half is going to be 
you know, balanced. Surely the second half will see both teams step their games up. And in truth, only United really did. United had a good second half. Everton really just, I don't want to say gave up. Gave up is the wrong terminology, but you didn't feel there was an urgency from them in the second half. United could have scored a couple more, did get one very late on. Edinson Cavani with his first goal for United on 95 minutes, uh, an assist for Bruno Fernandes in that one as well. Um, and that's three defeats on the bounce for Everton, which, you know, having won their first four and then gotten the draw with Liverpool, you really did think Everton were going to kick on. Now, maybe I have jinxed them this season by predicting them to finish fourth, but you know, if that is the case, that is the case. Um, I, I do apologize to Everton fans. It was my intention. <laughs> but, you know, they've three defeats in, in a row is not good. It really is not good for a team with ambitions. This is the best Everton team in quite a while. And uh, they really look short of ideas of confidence right now. The injury to Richarlison, or to the suspension of Richarlison and the injury to James Rodriguez is massive. James in the first four games was sensational. He's clearly been carrying this in two of his in his last two games. Obviously, missed the one in between. Played pretty well against Liverpool at times. Picked the injury up late. So, you know, the early, oh, this guy's going to, you know, make the league look really poor kind of predictions are starting to dim. Everton need him back at his best because when he's at his best, he opens the whole field up for them. They need Richarlison back badly because he's their outlet. He's also very good in the air. He's incredibly hardworking, and he has a great relationship with Luca Dina down that left-hand side. Dina had po- quite a poor game in this one. Um, uh, I think just the, there isn't that natural chemistry with him and, and Bernard that there is with him and Richarlison. So all things considered, this is a really good win for United. It must be said. It's an important three points for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, who I think was starting to hear complaints, starting to hear whispers of discontent, starting to hear the rumours, Pochettino's appearance on Monday Night Football a few weeks back, obviously stoked the flames, Allegri sits out there, available, should anybody, you know, be looking for a a very successful manager, it's possible Zinedine Zidane becomes available soon, if Real Madrid don't stop giving away penalties and scoring own goals. So, I do think for Oli, he needs a consistent run of form. And I don't just mean four or five games. I'm talking 10 to 15 games. All he needs to put a run together where United win, say if it's 15 games, where they win nine, draw three, and only lose two. That's what all he needs. He needs to show that he has a real plan for every match, not just those big European nights. The international break comes at a good time for him. It's an opportunity for him to start planning for the next three, four, five games. It's an opportunity for him to reassess, have a little look at what he's done in certain games, what went right, what went wrong. I think he needs to start asking himself some questions about Paul Pogba as well. 
Uh, once again, Paul Pogba doesn't start and Manchester United win. The Fred McTominay pairing worked really well. Bruno seemed much happier playing with those two. I think he needs to ask himself the big question about Paul Pogba. Because United are better without him on the pitch. Right now, they're better without him on the pitch. And that's a tough pill to swallow for you know a guy who cost so much money. But um, it may just be the case that for the good of United, for the good of Oli, Paul Pogba needs to have a more limited role. Maybe you play him in European football from the start where the tempo of the game maybe suits him a little bit better. There's more space. But in league form, in, in league football, the bench is where he should be. After that, we had uh, Crystal Palace against Leeds. Uh, this game turned out to be quite one-sided in the end, though it could have gone very, very differently. Scott Dan put Leeds ahead, or sorry, Scott Dan put Palace ahead on 12 minutes with a header. Um, and Leeds... Leeds are such a funny team. They're just such a strange team. They offer lots going forward, but defensively they have been nothing short of shambolic. And I'll get into it a bit more, but they get a goal disallowed basically for pointing. Basically, it's for pointing. It is the most stupid offside we have seen yet. Patrick Bamford is about two feet behind the last defender. It, Onside, he's about two foot onside, but because he is pointing for where he wants the ball played, he gets ruled offside. It is a ridiculous decision. Common sense needs to prevail, it is a ludicrous offside. The idea that because you're pointing you can be ruled offside is just madness. It denies Leeds a perfectly good goal. Whether it makes a difference in the game or not, I don't know. Bamford, of course, does score a few minutes later, but not after Eberichi Easy, not until after Eberichi Easy has scored an absolutely fantastic free kick. Wonderful, wonderful technique, bent up and over the wall into the top corner from about 25 yards out. Great, great free kick by a wonderfully talented young player who really dictated this game. Easy was the best player on the field for me. Everything that was good about Crystal Palace went through him. Seemed to really strike up a good understanding with his fellow attackers, Andros Townsend, Jordan Ayew, um, Eberichi Easy. I thought it was really, really good. The best performance we've seen from Easy since he's uh, arrived at the club. Um, I thought Palace overall looked quite good. I thought they looked strong defensively. Nathaniel Klein continues his comeback, and he still looks a little bit, a little bit rusty. 
but this was a better performance than than last week, and next week I'm sure will be a better performance again. Patrick Van Anhold also coming back, having missed you know the first what six games of the season, again a little bit rusty, but when he got into his groove and he was going forward, he was combining really well with Easy, making the the PVA runs, doing bits. Um, all things considered, it was a really good balanced approach from Palace. They get uh, a third goal in bizarre circumstances as um, as a cross hits Helder Costa. And somehow, I have no idea what Ilian Messler was doing. I really don't know what he was doing. I don't know how it beats him. I don't know how it finds its way into the net. It's a dreadful goal to concede. And his performance on the day, I thought, was really poor. I, I think Leeds need to be looking for a better goalkeeper come January. It's not that this kid is not a very talented goalkeeper. He absolutely is. He's just not ready. He's just not at the level that Leeds need right now. Um, that's the one area I would say they need to to definitely upgrade come January. They're missing uh, Calvin Phillips something massive in midfield. They really, really are. He is so important to their system. They have not been the same without him. Um, Jordan Ayew gets the fourth, and, and it is game over. Bamford did score a really nice consolation goal, about 27 minutes, um, which, you know, there was a little bit of FU about his goal, about his finish, like a little bit of, oh, well, you know, disqualify that one. But Leeds didn't really muster a whole bunch after that. Um, one good header from from Struzek, um was about it and I thought it was just a disappointing day for Leeds um they've you know they've lost a lot of their momentum they're now down to 15th 17 goals conceded joint worst in the league they will not be happy about that they have scored a lot of goals they've obviously scored 14 goals so far and only a couple of teams have scored more than that but they're defensively they're just I wonder if part of it is a couple of the defenders that came up with them are being found out a little bit at this level. Now they, these guys have had good performances at Premier League level so far, but on the weekend and the weekend before, yeah, that's two weekends and only they conceded four goals. Uh, those two defenders that I'm thinking of, and maybe you can name them yourselves, they've they've really looked out of place at the Premier League level. And, you know, Diego Lorienti is to come back, so that will be one who will come in and replace one of those struggling defenders, but it's not ideal for Leeds right now. They still have the four-point cushion to Brighton, and they're still seven points ahead of West Brom, who are 18. So no concerns in that regard at the moment. But back-to-back games where you concede four goals is not good. Um, It's the third time this season that Leeds have conceded four goals. You'll allow the one against Liverpool at Anfield as a newly promoted team. You know, that's just just is what it is. But to give up four to Leicester, now four to Palace, and then you've got Everton 
So you've got Arsenal, Everton and Chelsea as your next three. The form Chelsea are in. If Everton have Richarlison and Hammers back at, at their best, that's not pretty. That's not going to be pretty. Uh, Leeds have work to do over the international break. Bielsa needs to sit down and needs to have a think about how he sorts that defensive mess out. Goalkeepers definitely going to have to be addressed in January. There's just there's no way around that, unfortunately. It needs to be addressed in January. Uh, next up then, we did have Chelsea. Um, they look like they might be in for a long afternoon when David McGoldrick put Sheffield United 1-0 up after nine minutes. Um, it looked like Sheffield United were bang up for this game. First 10 minutes, they match Chelsea. They look more dangerous and they get their rewards with a really nice really nice finish from McGoldrick. And then they just kind of gave up. It was almost like they were like, oh, that's it. We got our goal. Now we'll just sit back and we're not really going to do a whole bunch from here. And Chelsea just wiped the floor with them. 71% possession, 20 shots on goal, 9 on target, 4 goals scored. Hakim Zayic playing as if it was a training session, nobody closing him down, allowing him space to dictate the game, swing passes left and right. It's just a fantastic all-round performance from him. Uh, the first Chelsea goal has a little bit of luck about it. Tammy Abraham's finish is not the best finish in the world, but it's effective. It gets itself bouncing over the outstretched arms of Mr. Ramsdale, uh, Ben Chilwell's goal has a, has an element of luck to it as well, because it just sort of hits him. It's a it's a Zayic cross. Chilwell comes in back post, and it just sort of sort of hits him and goes in. Um, the third goal was it was a really good headed goal by Thiago Silva from from a corner, um, and Timo Werner wraps it up on eighty. But Sheffield United's performance was was really poor. Again, uh, you said this last week, no one expects you to win. We expect you to put up a fight. It's a free hit. Go and have a go at them. You lost 4-1 anyway. It couldn't have got much worse. It's just a really poor performance from what is becoming a very poor team. Right now, they're just a poor team. It's as simple as that. And unfortunately, Chris Wilder doesn't seem to have any answers at the moment. Now, he does get the international break, and he's going to need to sort things out because one point after eight games is is just not going to be acceptable to anybody. No matter how much you've built up, no matter how much currency you've built up with your owners, they're going to want to know what you're planning to turn things around. You You get an opportunity after the break. You get West Ham at home. You get West Brom away. You've got to take four points from those games because then you've got Leicester, Southampton, and Man United. So these two games, you need to pick up some points. It doesn't get easy in the Premier League. You've got little pockets of games here and there where you might have two or three games back-to-back where, yeah, you'll expect to pick up four, six, seven points. But you're going to have runs of games. For example, in January, you play Spurs, United, and City. No points is the expected point total from that. Um, they they need to improve, and it needs to happen 
really, really soon. Because the way they're playing, they could become Sunderland or they could become Derby and just turn in one of the more embarrassing points totals in the history of the Premier League. One point from eight games. Four goals conceded. Sorry, four goals scored. 14 conceded. This team to finish ninth last year. Ninth. They spent the better part of 50 million this summer. I tell a lie, they spent over 50 million. Between Brewster, Ramsdale, the two boys from Derby, they spent over 50 million this year. One point. Them and Burnley should be utterly ashamed of themselves at this point in the season. It's a great win for Chelsea. Chelsea's attack is humming. Uh, the most goals scored in the league this year were 20. They are fifth in the league. Um, Villa, of course, do have a game in hand. Though it's against City, so, it, you know, not the, not the, the game they'd have wanted as their game in hand. But... You know, it's it's a good start for Chelsea, uh, fifth in the league. You'd expect they'll be challenging for top four at the end of the season. With that squad ending, other than that would be would be embarrassing to be to be frank. That squad is loaded with attacking talent. Um, I did see Graham Souness and Ashley Cole wax lyrical about their fullbacks, and Souness said that. It was like winning the lottery to have those two fullbacks. Well, it, it's not really because, you know, they spent 50 million on Ben Chilwell. And I know they got Reese James for free, but they spent 50 million on Ben Chilwell. That's not winning the lottery. That's spending 50 quid on scratch cards and winning about 30 quid back. That's what that is. You aren't winning the lottery. Liverpool. Brought Trent Alexander-Arnold through their academy. Uh, they picked up Kevin Stewart off the footballing scrap heap. Played him a handful of times. Converted him from a right back to a holding midfielder. And then basically swapped him and three million for Andy Robertson. They got Andy Robertson, who's one of the three or four best left backs in the world. Definitely the best in the Premier League. For Kevin Stewart and three million. Kevin Stewart was released by Hull this past summer. So they basically got Andy Robertson for three million. So, you know, you'll appreciate the fact that that's two better fullbacks for much, 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 much less money. That's winning the lottery, not buying some scratch cards. Um, but, you know, really, really good performance from Chelsea. Uh, and then finally, we had West Ham against Fulham in the late kickoff. Uh, this was a game that you might as well have slept through because the, the teams seemed to sleep through uh, for large periods. Once again, we saw Fulham put out a team with... Lots and lots of talent. 
we saw West Ham stick to what what's worked for them and, and what they've done well. The the three four three or the the back seven, one one one, uh, and you know, it was once again effective for for West Ham. They win one nil. Thomas Suchek with a late goal set up by Saeed Benrama, who you'd imagine will be pushing for a starting role in the coming weeks. Now, the issue there is, where does he start? The natural position and the only position really in the team that suits him is where Pablo Fernals plays. But Fernals has been playing really well. Can't drop, drop Jared Bowen because you need him for his goal threat. You can't drop Haller because you need him for his aerial presence. You can't play central midfield. So unless you're planning a, a change of shape, unless you're maybe planning to go 4-3-3, maybe drop Fornals back into midfield alongside Rice and Suchek, leave out one of the defenders. You'd imagine Masuaka with Kressel just becoming a left-back, Kufal a right-back, and Balbuena, I suppose, and Albana as the central pairing, though you know most sensible people would play Issa Diop and Albana as the central pairing. Then you can bring in Said Benrama on the left wing with Bowen staying right and, and Halar through the middle until Antonio's back anyway. Um, it's another good win for West Ham because any win's a good win, but they got very, very lucky. Very, very lucky here. Fulham get a late penalty, and I mean late. This was a game that was meant to have 94, uh, sorry, it was meant to have four minutes of stoppage time. And in the 97th minute, Adamola Luckman stepped up to take a penalty. Now, there obviously had been some delays when trying to figure out if it was a penalty or not. But literally, the last kick of the game, Luckman steps up. Opportunity to earn his team a point. A point they maybe loosely deserved. I think West Ham were the better team, created the better chances. I think we saw Ariola make a couple of really good saves in this game. But Fulham had kept in it and they had created a couple of decent openings of their own. Really don't understand why uh, Loftus-Cheek didn't start in this game. Didn't understand the, the changes that were made. Loftus-Cheek coming on for Zambo Anguisa was a weird, a weird move uh, at the time. But... Loftus-Cheek needs to be starting. He's a better player than Kearney. Get him in the team. Just a better player. Simple as that. Uh, but yeah, last minute of the game, Luckman steps up. Now, bear in mind, a few weeks ago, Fulham travelled to Sheffield United and should have got the win other than only Mitrovic hit the crossbar with a penalty and then gave away a stupid late penalty. But forgetting that one, if, he'd score, if he scores that penalty, Fulham win that game and would have gone into this game with um, with six points rather than four points. And Luckman, what goes through his head, I don't know. It is one of the worst penalties I've ever seen. He goes for the Penenka. And a lot of people have said in the past that when you take a penalty against Fabianski, you, you just go down the middle because he will always dive. He will commit early and he will dive. And it's clear that he tries to go down the middle, except he doesn't. He chips it to the side where Fabianski has dived and Fabianski, who has already hit the ground, is able to get back up and catch the ball. 
it's a very embarrassing moment for Adam Ola Luckman. And I'm a big fan of Adam, of Adam Ola. I think he's a, a super talented young player with a big, big future as long as he can get out of his own way. And in this instant, he failed to get out of his own way. If not for missed penalties, Fulham would currently sit 16th in the league with seven points. They would be much happier with where they are right now. That miss could be very costly. I've said before, the last time they came up, when they came up in 1819, they gave the manager 12 games. He attained five points. This time around, after eight games, they have four points. Looking at their at their fixtures, they have Everton next, then Leicester, then City, and then Liverpool. And that will get them to 12 games. That's the same point at which they sacked Jukanovic the last time. How many points do they get from those four games? Because right now I have to say zero. The only game I look at there and think maybe they could get a point is Everton, purely because Everton are out of form. Everton coming in off three three uh, successive defeats. You know, maybe we'll have some doubt about themselves and maybe that's a game Fulham can get a point. But you wouldn't fancy them to go to Leicester and get anything or the Etihad and get anything. You wouldn't fancy them against Liverpool. So... I I would bet there are conversations taking place at Fulham over the next couple of days with regards to whether they decide to make the move now and bring in someone else and at least give them the international break to get settled or whether they give Scott Parker a little bit more rope. It would not surprise me if Scott Parker is fired before games resume. I hope it doesn't happen. I never like to see anybody get dismissed. I don't think he's good enough to manage in the Premier League at this point in his managerial career. I think tactically he's quite poor. And I think inspiration and motivation can only bring you so far. Um, Who they'd bring in, I don't know. I really don't know. I think they'd have to maybe look to the continent and bring in somebody with experience. Someone who can, who's really a strong tactical manager. Um, one of the reasons I have doubts over getting a motivator in with this group of players is how many of them are there on loan. I think you're better off just relying on their talent than trying to motivate them to give them, you know, an extra 10% or anything like that. Now, they could well turn around and bring in Big Sam and just say, you know, we just need to grind it out here. Sam knows how to keep teams up which he, of course, does. Um, and then they, you know, while they bring him in, they can also begin to plan for next summer with regards to who they'd want long-term. But I do think, I do think time is running out on Parker. And I know, like, they're not bottom, they're not bottom three. But those owners don't mess about and they will have seen, you know, a lot of warning signs over these first eight games that I think will concern them. So 
as I say, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Scott Parker uh, is out of a job when games resume. Um, right, we will do the other four tomorrow. That's West Brom, Spurs, Leicester, Wolves, Man City, Liverpool. Quite a bit to talk about there. And Arsenal, Aston Villa. Uh, we'll wrap up today with a little bit of transfer gossip. Um, taken from the BBC gossip page as always. Uh, we won't read the first two because of where they're from. AC Milan are trying to ascertain whether Manchester United will be willing to sell Diego Dalot uh, following his loan spell with, with Milan this year. I think it's fair to say they probably would, considering they tried to sell him all of last summer. Uh, Phil Foden is set to sign a new contract with Manchester City that will tri- uh, triple his wage. Hopefully it'll help him get a decent haircut for once. Uh, that would be nice. Um England's Nations League game with Iceland on the 18th of November may be moved, moved to a neutral country because of COVID restrictions on travel to the UK from Denmark. Here's the better idea. Just cancel it. Just call it off. It's pointless. Absolutely pointless. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer still has the backing of his players despite the team's inconsistent form. That's good. That is promising. Um, you know, you don't want to see the players turn their back on the manager or then it is over. Um, it's 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 positive for Ollie that he still has the backing of the players. Swiss midfielder Granit Xhaka says his heart was gone from Arsenal before Mikel Arteta took over from Unai Emery. Well, it looks like his head is gone as well and always has looked like his head was gone because he's a brainless player. Tottenham Hotspur midfielder Pierre-Emile Heusberg is set to miss Tottenham's home matches because of coronavirus isolation protocols surrounding a return from Denmark to England. Uh, it's a good thing for Spurs. That's that's it. He gets a rest. It's a really good thing for Spurs. He's super important. I mean, he's carrying a little knock to his ankle, so it is a good thing for him. Uh, Liverpool's Champions League game with Mitterland could be in doubt because of this ban um, with Denmark. So I'd assume that game will have to be played on neutral ground. That's the only thing that makes sense is that they play it in the neutral venue, maybe play it in Germany somewhere. Uh, Jose Mourinho is showing he is the right man to take Spurs to a trophy-winning level using a very direct method of dealing with players, says recently retired Michel Vorm. Yeah, I think Mourinho is doing a really good job this year. Um, I think he's getting the best out of the players and using them in the correct way. And obviously he's got a lot of options there to rotate as well. Paris Saint-Germain coach Thomas Tuchel says former Man United and Spain midfielder Ander Herrera died in the dressing room for the team as he praised the 31-year-old's performance in the win over Rennes. It was an average performance. What are you talking about? He was like 7 or 8 out of 10 at most. Just hyperbolic nonsense. Um, Italy striker... Moise Keane, who is on loan at PSG, has been described as very important by Tuchel after he scored five goals in five games. Yeah, it, rem- it remains a-, a mystery to me as to why Everton were willing to loan out a player of that talent uh, when they have no no depth up front. Joe Willock would benefit from a loan, according to Martin Keown. I think that's correct. I think he would. I think he could do with a couple of games here and there. Um, so maybe a championship loan. Former Man United striker Louis Saha says 
the Red Devils need four recruits of the caliber of Bruno Fernandes in order to challenge for titles. Yeah, they do, but they're not going to get them. Um, they might might buy four more players in the same position as Bruno because that's you know seems to be the obsession. Uh, Samuel Etu is said to be recovering after being involved in a car accident in Cameroon. Well, do very much wish uh, a speedy recovery to Samuel Etu, one of the one of the best strikers I've ever seen. Uh, tremendous footballer, and uh, yeah, wishing him a speedy recovery. Former leading referee Keith Hackett says the current handball rule is a joke and not a very good one. And Mr. Hackett, you are indeed correct. Uh, Premier League support manager Nick Haycock, who has worked with West Ham and Manchester City, is set to become Aston Villa's head of technical and player development. Always good to see teams uh, invest in that aspect. So that's a promising move for Villa. I've been really impressed with everything I've seen from Villa over the last 12 months. Obviously, tomorrow we'll get into their win over Arsenal. But um, on and off the field, I think Villa are making big strides towards re-establishing themselves as a a Premier League club and not just a run-of-the-mill Premier League club. I think Villa have big, big plans. I think they will be aiming to get themselves into the kind of Leicester, Wolves, Europa League, maybe push for Champions League kind of group uh, within a year or so. So, you know, it's, it, it's good to see one of the great clubs of English football. And that's it. That is me for today. Thank you, as always, to Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Foxhaunt for our title music. And thank you to you. Thank you to you for listening to my ramblings day after day, week after week. It is very much appreciated. I will see you all tomorrow. Be safe. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.